I grew up in Sydney in the 70s and 80s, and uh, I went to primary school just around about 1980, and there was one particular time that I can remember where there was a lot of trading, a lot of buying and selling happening amongst the kids at school. People would bring all sorts of things to school to offer them up for sale to the other kids. That happened all throughout school, but really this was a particular time, just for a few weeks, when there was a huge influx in what was going on, and people actually set up stalls at lunchtime and were selling pretty valuable things, things like Monopoly boards and skateboards and the latest novel. All sorts of stuff was offered for sale. But cash wasn't handed over in order to buy these things. The purchases were made using gum nuts, it was a bit of a strange thing. We lived in a very bushy part of Sydney and so there were a lot of gum trees and kids would gather up gum nuts from the ground in order to buy these items that other kids were selling. It had come as no surprise to the economists amongst us that the whole system collapsed very rapidly when a bunch of kids realised gum nuts were worthless. You spent 10 minutes, you could probably pick up a thousand gum nuts. And so the whole thing fell very flat, very quickly. And the people who'd sold all of their valuables, their soccer balls and skateboards and books, were left with nothing but useless bags of gum nuts. They would have been very disappointed. That sort of economy, I guess, makes us, just gives us an opportunity to pause and to see what it is that we value in the world around us. When you look at everything that the world has to offer, houses, overseas holidays, not that many of us have taken those in the last 12 months, new cars, status and prestige, do you look at that and think, those are the things that I really want to grab hold of? Or do you look at those things and think, those things are part of the government economy? Will there come a time when you realise that all of those things hold very little lasting value? Or will you spend your days chasing after all of those things? We're going to look at Esther 1 and 2 tonight. And so I want to give you just a little bit of background so that it helps us to understand what's going on here. Esther is a true historical record of events that occurred when Xerxes or Ahasuerus was king. You might have had a different translation and you had Ahasuerus rather than Xerxes in what you were reading tonight. Same fellow. He ruled over a vast kingdom that stretched all the way from India to Ethiopia, from Africa to Asia. And it was a massive kingdom. Let me read out for you the names of some of the, of the, the countries that he ruled over. Part of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, part of Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia and Northern Sudan. Now in our world there's a lot more countries that we know of, but at this time this is pretty much all of the known world. The king rules over the kingdom of the entire world. It is massive and you cannot get away from it. Everyone is ruled by this king and it's an impressive kingdom. The king wants to show it off. He does in in this opening chapter. He holds a banquet for six months and invites all of the key leaders, mostly the military leaders from all of the provinces to come to Susa, the capital, 
and he displays all of his incredible wealth. There is gold and silver couches. Here we are sitting on plastic. It could be a lot more impressive, couldn't it? Gold and silver couches, marble, fine stones, fine linens. And every goblet is spectacular and different. Now you read that and think, maybe the king's gone to Vinnie's and picked up every last spare glass that he could get. Actually, the truth is, the king has lavishly had all sorts of craftsmen deliver all sorts of expensive items that go into the palace to display his wealth. He's incredibly rich and all of it is on display to influence the nobles and the military leaders. My family and I have spent uh, several years travelling to the north coast to go on holidays and the last few years we've been driving through the Hunter Valley. I'm not sure if you've ever driven through the Hunter Valley from here, but it's a, a very pretty drive in a good season. It'd be spectacular at the moment. But if you do that drive, there's a point where you drive past some very impressive farms. There's a farm owned by the Packer family. There are farms that are obviously really wealthy, and what marks them out is their front gate is spectacular. They're massive stone structures with big swinging timber gates, you don't need that sort of a structure to keep the horses in or to keep your livestock in. You build that sort of thing in order to display your wealth so that you can say to the world, we've got money and lots of it. And we can waste tens of thousands of dollars on a front fence that we don't really need. That's exactly what the king is doing at this point. He is displaying his wealth in order to be impressive. Now, probably in the history of what happened around this time, the king is gathering up the military leaders in order to get them ready to partner him in going to war against the Greeks. And so this six-month-long lavish feast is influencing the military leaders so that they know that the king can pay for the war, that their efforts can be rewarded as they go to war. He's saying, see all my wealth. You will be richly rewarded when you partner with me. And he's showing off his wealth and glory and power to build allegiances. Let you stop and think, doesn't it? A six-month feast, a six-month celebration of incredible wealth and lavishness. We've been through a few months of lockdown. This is the exact opposite, where everything is laid on and everyone is gathered together. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed this either, but there are two banquets in chapter 1. Verse 4, have a look with me. It says, For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. Now, verse 5, there's a second banquet. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. This second banquet, banquet, this week-long banquet, is actually for all those people who probably worked on the six-month banquet. The citadel of Susa, in some translations, describes the king's gate. It's the location where the bureaucracy and the administration of the whole empire would have taken place. The civil service that did all the work that the king needed done to look after the whole empire, that happened at the citadel, right near the king's palace. 
And so all these people then are actually invited to a week-long banquet. It's a bit like putting on a big gig for everyone who works at Parliament House in Canberra or the West Wing of the White House. The King is going to reward those people who work for him. And all of it is very inviting. All of it tells us if you get in good with this kingdom and with this empire, then there are benefits. And they're very impressive benefits. Have you ever wandered past the newsagent in town when Oz Lotto or one of the lotteries is putting on a big week? You've seen one of those weeks when there's all the coloured balloons and all the posters are up saying win $30 million, $40 million? And alongside with that advertising, when you walk past the newsagent, there's an invitation to start thinking about what you would do with all that money. Wouldn't it be nice? What would you do if you won $30 or $40 million? It's in our nature, isn't it, to want those things, those possessions that we think would make life just a little bit easier and just a little bit nicer. But let's look a little more closely at this kingdom and see what this kingdom is like. Did you notice what happened to the Queen? In chapter 1, Vashti, the Queen, is invited to this seven-day banquet, the short banquet. The king's actually drunk at the end of the banquet. It's gone on for a week, and then he says to his eunuchs, to his assistants, go and grab the Queen and bring her back. We want to have a look at her. Have a look with me at verse 11. He's got a reason for wanting to bring the Queen. Here it is. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the peoples and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Does the queen want to bring the king because she's a good uh, the, the king want to bring the queen because she's a good singer? No. Can she dance or do something to entertain all these drunken men? No. The king wants to show off her body. Because the whole kingdom is all about outward appearances. It's all about the visible and it has no particular substance. And the queen refuses to come to a bunch of drunken men in the middle of a week-long party. There's no comment in the narrative as to whether or not that's a good choice or a bad choice. In my world, with a few daughters, I'd be saying it's probably a good idea not to be there. You could think of other places to be, better places to be, but the narrative flows on, it's not significant. She just says no to the king. And she is discarded by the king because her only use is her beauty and her body. She is pushed to the side and no longer needed. And look what happens to Esther as that unfolds in chapter 2. Esther also is stunningly beautiful. She's a supermodel and she's taken to the king's harem in the citadel of Susa. See how that happened? The king sends out his decree to go and grab all of the beautiful women in the empire, in this massive empire, that they would be brought to him so that he would have his pick of all the virgin women, the beautiful virgin women within the empire. Esther turns up, she pleases the eunuch who's in charge. She has 12 months of all the best beauty treatment laid on. She has seven assistants at her beck and call to look her best. Does that sound inviting? 12 months to try and physically be at your absolute best, at your most beautiful before you meet the king. 
And we naturally think of how stunning that would be. What a wonderful experience. You go to meet the king, we're thinking, farmer wants a walk. Here comes the romantic dinner. The king's going to engage her in conversation and at the end he decides whether or not he gives her a rose. He asks her, how is she going to achieve world peace? No, it's not going to happen at all. That's not what this story tells us. This is king wants a queen and he just wants the most stunningly beautiful queen. And he's going to take her and pop her in the pile of virgins. He's going to use her for a night and then he's going to pop her in the pile of concubines and if she's particularly pleasing to him, then he will get her back and use her again. And as this story unfolds, Esther, one of the Jews, one of God's people, just randomly is liked by the king. She is queen material. He is going to use her for his own purposes. He is going to display her to the nobles in the years ahead, and he puts on a public holiday to celebrate this new queen. We love long weekends, don't we? The land of the long weekend, this is a celebration, this is Queen Esther's banquet long weekend. That's how that story unfolds. But remember, if you are no longer useful in this kingdom, you'll be discarded, just like Queen Vashti. And in case at this point you stop and think to yourself, well, wow, these women get a bad deal. That's true. They're essentially being abducted from all parts of the empire in order to be brought into the king's palace to become a concubine for him. The women get a bad deal, but the men get a bad deal too. There are units in service in the king's palace. Not sure if you've ever wanted to volunteer for a particular job, lads, but this is not one you want to put your hand up for. One of the historians around this time says there were 500 boys at one point in time who were delivered to the king to serve as eunuchs. It's a brutal kingdom and a brutal king who's in operation. There's a glitz and glamour about the kingdom externally. There's incredible wealth and power at play and it captures our attention and our eye. But when you look at it, there is a dark and brutal and sinister side to this kingdom. And alongside of that, the king, for all his power and strength, is involved in quite a bit of silliness as the story unfolds. There are some really crazy decisions that get made along the way, and the king doesn't look like an all-spectacular leader. For all his power and strength, he's totally dumbstruck by a woman who simply says no to him. She refuses to come, and then he needs to have some sort of advisers tell him what he should do now. And then those advisers give this advice. Have a look with me at verse 19. They tell the king, this is what you should do. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. What did she get in trouble for? She said, I'm not going into the presence of King Xerxes. And then these advisors come and say, make a law, tell the whole empire, this is what happened to the queen. She is never allowed to enter the presence of the king. That's what she asked for. And now she's got it. She doesn't want to be used by a king that wants to use her. And so alongside of giving the queen exactly what she wants and being thrown into the briar bush, the whole world knows of this embarrassing episode where the king hasn't been able to influence his wife. And the king uh, 
almost always in the book of Esther requires advice to make any decision. He's incapable of making a call by himself. The one call he looks like he does make is actually that in that banquet there is a command that everyone is able to drink whatever you want in that banquet. It's in fact legislated irresponsible service of alcohol that the king commands. And then in chapter 2, actually years go by between the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2. Chapter 2, the fury of the king has subsided, but it's taken about four or five years. Here's a man who leads the known world, but leads it in a rage and sometimes a drunken rage. The world looks like it is out of control. And the king of this kingdom is entirely self-serving. And he actually needs someone in chapter 2 when he recognises that he hasn't got a queen. He has to to wait until a personal attendant suggests that perhaps he could find a replacement. What's happening in Esther 1 and 2? Well, here is an outwardly very impressive kingdom But look hard enough and it is shallow and brutal. And what does our author want us to know? The world is full of glitz and glamour and it captures our eye, but at its heart it is a brutal and ugly place that uses up people and discards them. Friends, if you're a Christian here tonight, know this, we can be really strongly tempted to align ourselves with this world and with its wealth and glory and power and seek after the things of this world. But we need to be reminded of the emptiness and the shallowness and occasionally the foolishness of this world and what it seeks after. Jesus told the story of a rich man with an abundant crop in a good season. We know what it is to have a good season. And that man built barns and said to himself at the end of storing up all of his grain that he was ready to ready for anything that would come in the years ahead. He said to himself, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. That's what our world says, isn't it? Prepare yourself for what is to come so that you can enjoy all of the best things in life. Stash away enough cash that whatever happens, you are ready to enjoy the years that you have. Here's what Jesus said about that way of thinking. God said to him, you fool. You fool. You fool if you spend your day stashing away money. Why? This very night your life will be demanded from you. That's what Jesus said. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? We're constantly tempted to think that life consists in the abundance of our possessions So we need to constantly remind ourselves of the emptiness and foolishness of chasing chasing after things that will not last. So let me give you some maths to do. It's really simple maths. Sunday night, you don't have to think too hard. Take the number 100. Subtract, Subtract your age. For me, that's around about 50. The number you've come up with now, anything you're chasing after in this world, a house, a car, an overseas holiday, any sort of valuable item that you are chasing after, superannuation that you stash away for your old age, it's useful for that number and nothing else. 80 years maybe? At best, 
for some of us, 50 years at best, maybe 20 years, maybe this very night. It is absolute foolishness to chase after the things of this world. What else do we notice in this story? Mordecai and Esther pop up in in these two chapters, in Esther 1 and 2. They live in this brutal, shallow, skin-deep kind of kingdom. What do we learn about them? They're Jews. The book of Esther keeps repeating the word Jew over and over again. The author wants to make a point about the Jews. Who are the Jews? They're the people of God. They're the people who trust in the promises of God, who hold on to the promises the God of the Bible has made to people who put their trust in that God. That's who the Jews are. If you're a Christian here tonight, that's who you are. You put your trust in Jesus and you hold on to the promises of God made to us through Jesus. What's the situation for Mordecai and Esther? It's in chapter 2, verse 6, but I want to read you a literal translation of the original text. This is going to be a little bit different to what you've got, but listen to this. This is almost a word-for-word translation of chapter 2, verse 6. This is the situation Mordecai and Esther are in. It's talking about Mordecai. Verse 6, he had been exiled from Jerusalem. With the exiles who had been exiled with Jehoiachin king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar had exiled. Do you get what the author's trying to tell us? The people of God are exiles. They are foreigners in a strange land. That was Mordecai and Esther's situation. That is every Christian person's situation. Everyone who puts their trust in God has moved into a different kingdom. You are a foreigner in a strange land if you are a Christian. And you should not look like the people around you. Esther also has two names in the story. She's called Esther and Hadassah. She's got the local name, Esther, and she's got the Hebrew name, Hadassah. And we describe both names because that's going to be an issue for Esther. She's amongst the Jews. She's one of God's people. She's Hadassah. But she's in this position of privilege in the empire amongst this big kingdom, and she's Esther. What's she going to do? Is she going to make sure that she is known amongst the Jews to be one of the people of God and suffer the persecution and the difficulties that come with life because she's known amongst God's people? Or will will she stick with just being someone amongst the empire of the world and walk away from her identity as part of God's people? That's the question for Esther. Friends, that's the question for us. If you're a person who's put your trust in Jesus, sometimes it is going to be so much easier to deny that. There's going to be a weight to that, perhaps more and more weight to that as the years go on, to put your hand up and say, I'm with Jesus. And the world may say, we want nothing to do with you because of that. Are you going to hang on to Jesus and be known amongst the people of God? Or will you side with the kingdom of this world? 1 Peter 2 describes the fact that all Christians are foreigners and exiles. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. It was the case two and a half thousand years ago. It's the case tonight. It's going to be the case until the day you die. If you're associated with Jesus, you are an exile in a foreign land for 
all of your days. Christian, know your identity. But know this too. The banquet didn't last. Six months of flash, very impressive, and then it's gone. It's disappeared. If you hope for the things of this world, it will not last. 80 years, 50 years, 10 years, one night. And it'll all be gone. So let me ask you the question, are you living as an exile or have you taken on the values of the world? Do your hopes and dreams look just like your non-Christian friend down the road or at uni or at school? Or do you look radically different to the nice people around you? Are your hopes and dreams radically different to those people? And when you look at the world and what it seeks after, do you recognise the gumnut economy is at play? These things won't last. They hold no lasting value. And therefore, do you invest in the kingdom that never ends? Remember, if you, if you throw your lot in with this world, with the rulers and principalities and powers of this world, ultimately they are never interested in your good. They want to gain and benefit from you, but they are never ultimately interested in serving you. And you see that as you look at the king in this story. He takes people, he uses them for his purposes, and he discards them. And friends, there is a spiritual reality of work in our world as well. The kingdom of this world, the principalities and powers of this world, are ultimately led by a different king, it's by Satan himself, and he is bent on your destruction. Side with the kingdom of this world, and you are siding with a kingdom that is bent on your destruction. But if you belong to a different kingdom, to a heavenly kingdom, it is ruled by a different king. And this king doesn't want to use you. In fact, he wants to serve you. And he already has served you. He has given his life to pay the price for your sins in order to bring forgiveness to you and bring blessing to you for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian here tonight, know the offer of the gospel. Turn to Jesus in trust, repent, believe, and this world will be incredibly hard, but there is a world to come where there will be blessing beyond measure, led by a greater king in a better king. Friends, the visible power and authority in our world is of no comparison, no comparison to the invisible power and authority of the God who really runs our lives. I'm going to finish with a little ad for the weeks to come in the book of Esther. A little promo that I hope you start reading and you come back for the next few weeks. Our exiles, Esther and Mordecai, are really pawns in the king's empire. They are very little people. Foreigners and exiles in a very big kingdom and a very under a very powerful king. Mordecai looks like he's a simple civil servant. But even in these opening couple of chapters, things change. Esther, the orphan girl without mother or father, amongst the people of God, has risen to become the queen with access to the most powerful man in the world. And Mordecai, this simple civil servant, has overheard an assassination plot. He saved the king's life by his report. A couple of random events that occur in these opening chapters of Esther. There's no, no such thing as random in God's world. 
And God is at work for good for those who love him. We're going to see that unfold in the coming weeks.